Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. During the interrogation, they notice an injury, and it looks like a bite mark to them. How can you say that someone killed someone off of, uh, off of a bite mark? Can you decide right now whether you want to be a witness or you want to be a suspect? I don't want to be no suspect. If I had not had the confession, it would have been a difficult case. The confession was the case. Throughout the day on May 21st, 2004, 73-year-old Eugene Garner isn't picking up his phone. His sister was trying to reach out to him, and he was not answering the phone. Andy Parati has covered Garner's story as an investigative reporter with 11 Alive in Atlanta. And I think it was a neighbor that uh, eventually came over, knocked on the door. He still wasn't answering and then finally let him in, let himself in to check on Eugene, and that's where they found his body in in his room. It was clear to investigators that some sort of fight altercation had happened and that he was eventually strangled to death. Police in Waycross, Georgia, head out to the home at 7.39 p.m. to investigate Eugene Garner's death. Andy Parati would later obtain footage of investigators entering the home. It's dusk, and there aren't any nearby streetlights, so the footage is pretty dark. A phone rings as they enter the front door, and flashlight in hand, they slowly move from room to room, throughout the quiet, single-story house. It's two officers with flashlights in the evening going through the home, documenting um, what they were seeing at that moment. And... It includes small droplets of blood found on a kitchen wall, a bedroom with blood on the sheets, and a belt. Um, it, it shows a, a vase knocked to the floor. It shows a bed clearly out of position as if a struggle had happened. And then also a strong scent of hydrogen peroxide as if someone was trying to clean up their mess. Garner's body is lying face down between the bed and the dresser, his head next to an empty green laundry basket and a pair of slippers. There's blood on his pants leg and the gold of his pinstripe shirt and soaking a white tank top underneath. There's also blood on the ground, near and around his head, pooled around Garner's short black hair. His body is covered in cuts and bruises, including a four by five and a half centimeter injury to Garner's right arm which a later autopsy report says is, quote, suggestive of a bite mark. The day after Eugene Garner's body was discovered, as investigators are trying to figure out 
Who could have possibly wanted this 73-year-old man dead? They end up locating a woman named Sheila Denton, who admits to having a relationship with Garner. Sheila Denton was a woman in the neighborhood that people knew about, and apparently she did have a drug problem, and that was a known thing. Even her family admits uh, back then that she did have a drug problem. And um, it became known to investigators that Eugene and Sheila knew each other. It was uncertain how they knew each other or what kind of relationship they had, but they had some sort of relationship where they knew each other. I don't know whether it was romantic or friendly, but it was known to everyone that they at least knew each other. Police bring the 37-year-old woman in for an interview, but she's not saying much. She lined the cake in woods, okay? How you doing? You need to wake up. You take your swig of drink. And she's not cooperative right off the bat. She doesn't want to talk. She says she's going to wait to talk. And but they're trying to get information from her. And during the interrogation, they notice an injury. And it looks like a bite mark to them. It's a sore on the left tricep area of Denton's arm. Sheila, let me see your hands. Put your hands up here on the table for me. And then they think back, well, hold on. Um, Eugene Gardner had a similar wound. So they go back to him and they, they notice what also looks like a bite mark. So investigators are thinking at this point, okay, we, we know that uh, Eugene Gardner was involved in some sort of altercation. She has a wound that looks similar. He has a wound that looks similar. Um, maybe these two were fighting each other. A few weeks later on June 9th, authorities obtain an arrest warrant for Sheila Denton and charge her with the murder of Eugene Garner. The next day, her dental impressions are collected to be checked against the wound on Garner's arm. They get a, a forensic dentist, or a dentist out of metro Atlanta area actually, and he evaluates the injuries. And, and to him, he believed that they were bite marks and that she bit him and he bit her. That dentist's conclusion is that the bite marks were each probable matches. It's then on August 4th that investigators pick up another woman, a known drug dealer named Sharon Jones, and bring her in for an interrogation. Jones tells the police that Sheila Denton is, quote, no good, and admits to selling crack cocaine to Denton the night Garner was killed. She also makes clear that she and Denton are not friends, that she doesn't think highly of Sheila Denton. But she don't care who she heard, man. She don't care what she say. She don't care. Still, at first, she tells police she doesn't know anything about Garner's death and that Sheila never said anything to her about it. Have you talked to Sheila Denton since uh, she's been in jail? No. Did Sheila ever tell you that she killed her? No. No. But after hours of being grilled, Jones is presented with a decision. Does she want to be a witness? Or does she want to be a suspect? The detectives tell Jones they have evidence putting her at the scene of the crime. But they don't. They're bluffing, lying. 
And it's only after being presented with this false evidence that Jones finally begins to break down and change her story, eventually telling the detectives that Sheila Denton came to her house that night, covered in blood, and confessed to killing a man. She was interrogated for hours. In fact, I think two different times she came in for interrogation. And, um, I mean, she... (laughs) It's also clear that she's not a big fan of Sheila Denton. She has some pretty choice words to say about her. So that right off the bat is, you know, she has no sort of reason to um, defend her. Um, But in her first interrogation, she also doesn't blame Sheila Denton. It's only after investigators lie and say that they have evidence putting her at the scene of the crime Then all of a sudden, the interrogation stops, she puts it in writing, and the confession is her reading what she wrote down. So it it did not come together organically. Uh, This this alleged confession did not come together organically. The interrogation was stopped, she wrote it down, and then she's asked to read it. Here's audio of Sharon Jones reading from her written statement in that interrogation saying that Sheila Denton told her she killed the man in front of Wally's, a convenience store across from Eugene Garner's house. She said, please open the door. I opened the door and she said, I just did something. I said, well, you did. She said, I just killed someone. I said, who? She said, the man in front of Wally's. Nine days later, on August 13th, a grand jury would indict Sheila Denton on charges of malice murder, felony murder, and giving police a false name. Andy Parati has since been out to Waycross, Georgia, where Eugene Garner lived. And while there, he decided to see if he could learn more about Garner by getting in touch with his sister. We uh, had received her contact information from the district attorney at the time, and I called her, and she agreed to talk, and we showed up, and um, Waycross is a couple hours away south of Atlanta, so we showed up, and she didn't initially want to talk to us, but um, she was gracious enough to give us her time. There was a time that, oh, Lord, I didn't think I was going to make it because my brother and I were very tight, and I miss him. And he was this, uh, a, a man that was from the area. Um, according to his sister, he was a religious man. He loved the garden. He spent a lot of time in his backyard gardening, and he was a family man. And according to his sister, he was a gracious man. And for some reason, she remembers him always carrying around money. He, for, and I don't know why, she, she chose to, to provide that information, but she, she said that he was known in the neighborhood as always having cash in his pocket. Oh, yeah, everybody knew that. Everybody that dealt with him or was around him in a length of time knew that he had all this money in his pocket. He had a, a roll of money in his pocket big enough to choke a cow. It's that cash Eugene Garner was known to carry, that roll of money in his pocket big enough to choke a cow, that investigators start to look at as a motive. That was the motive right off the bat. Uh, a known drug addict in the neighborhood, friends with someone, or at least acquaintances with someone known to have money on his person at all times became an immediate motive. 
That's the motive prosecutors would allege at trial two years later. And the supposed bite mark evidence would play a key role in their case. In fact, the district attorney prosecuting the case would state in his closing arguments, quote, if all we had that we came to you today was to say the bite mark, the one bite mark on the right arm of Eugene Garner, if that's all we had, I'd have to admit that's reasonable doubt. If that's all we had that tied Sheila Denton to the death of Eugene Garner, then we would not have enough. But then we've got also the bite mark on Sheila Denton. That bite mark, and look at it closely, has had a little time to heal, a few days. That bite mark matches up with the dentures and the teeth of Eugene Garner. We've got a bite mark on a live person, and we've got a bite mark on a dead man. The jury would convict Sheila Denton of Eugene Garner's murder. And on May 17, 2006, she would begin serving a life sentence. A bite mark? Andy Parati has also been in touch with members of Sheila Denton's family, who've insisted over the years that she's innocent. They remember her as a loving mother, devoted to her family, not someone who would kill an elderly man for money. Her son, Ricky Allen. How can you say that someone killed someone off of, uh, off of a bite mark? That don't necessarily say that you killed a person. The family did not believe she did this from the get-go. They admit that she had issues with drugs in the past. There's no doubt about that. But they did not believe she had the capacity to kill someone for it. And so from the very get-go, they, they defended her and did not believe that she did this. On the other side of this, a few years back, Eugene Garner's sister, Ruth Taylor, told Andy Parati that, at least at that time, she believed the trial court got it right, in so many words. I think she needed to die there. He died at home, so let her, that's her home now, so let her die at home. That's the way I feel. Over a decade after Sheila Denton's conviction, her case would be discovered by an attorney with the Southern Center for Human Rights, a nonprofit law office in Atlanta. We've been around for a little over 40 years. Um, we were started um, to do death penalty work in, in the South, represent people who needed um, assistance uh, and were facing, death penalty, facing a death sentence or on death row. This is that attorney, Mark Loudon Brown. And we also, so, so my unit, the capital units, focuses mostly on representing people who face death sentences or face, you know, life in, life without parole or life in prison, lengthy sentences. Loudon Brown says he came across Sheila Denton's case by chance, by searching around on the internet after attending a forensic science seminar where attendees learned about bite mark evidence. There were some presentations on the problems that um, bite mark testimony has created uh, for, in the criminal system. And so when I got back to Atlanta, I just sort of did a Google search and a Westlaw search for bite mark cases in Georgia. And I came across Ms. Denton's case. Uh, I read the appellate opinion. I was concerned by it. And I uh, got the file, did some investigation, did some records requests. And we realized that there was a problem there. And so we decided to take on the case and, and, and represent her. Since Sheila Denton's trial in 2006, there have been a number of major developments surrounding the use of bite mark evidence at trial. Perhaps the most notable was in 2016, when a report by the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology found, quote, bite mark analysis does not meet the scientific standards for foundational validity, end quote, 
calling it subjective and saying that examiners, quote, cannot identify the source of bite marks with reasonable accuracy, end quote. In March of 2016, and then revised in February of 2018, the American Board of Forensic Odontology published a new set of guidelines, including prohibiting a, quote, probable conclusion concerning bite mark testimony, 10 years after the probable conclusion in Denton's case. So today, experts may only testify regarding their conclusions if they're excluded, cannot be excluded, or inconclusive. But again, that wasn't the case when Sheila Denton was convicted. Back then, forensic dentists could claim a probable conclusion, even if, as Denton's new attorney, Mark Loudon Brown, suggests, the science was never there to make that conclusion with any certainty. And what happens a lot in these bite mark cases is, you know, there's the cognitive bias plays a real role. You know, the, 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 the police officer will say something like, ooh, maybe this is a bite mark. And then they'll call a forensic dentist up and they'll say, hey, we have a bite mark here. Can you look at it? Um, you know, that's not how it really how it's supposed to happen. The prosec- the, the, there should be, uh, there, you know, there should be blinding. There should be, there should, the, 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 the analyst who's about to take a look at the injury shouldn't know any information about the case. But that's not often how it goes. So in this case, um, the forensic dentist took a look and at the evidence and he said that there was an injury to the decedent that was a probable bite mark. And it was probably made by Ms. Denton and that there was an injury to Ms. Denton that was a bite mark and that it was probably made by uh, the decedent. Now, how you can say that it's a probable bite mark and, and then, try, you know, you can, how you can not be sure of whether it's not a bite mark, whether it's a bite mark or not and only say it's probable. I don't know how you can then identify it as as being belonging to someone, but Anyway, that was sort of the evidence. Um, there was a, an alleged bite mark on each of the two individuals, and it was allegedly inflicted by the other person. And so that was sort of where the case came to a close, I think, for the jury. Loudon Brown's research into the case also raised questions about some of the other evidence used at trial, namely the taped interrogation and subsequent testimony of Sharon Jones. He suggests her admission during that interrogation when she told detectives that Sheila Denton confessed to her has all the trademarks of a coerced statement. Ms. Jones, um, Sharon Jones, was a witness who, she, you know, she was a struggling, uh, she was struggling with drugs, drug addiction at the time, and um, was brought in to be interviewed by the police, be interrogated by the police, and was told that they had a video, video um, footage of her at the crime scene, which was actually untrue. It was a lie. Um, but they were being very coercive with her. And at one point, we, we actually have some of the video footage from the interrogation. And it, at one point, the, in, the investigator says, do you want to be a defendant or do you want to be a witness? And she says, well, I don't want to be a defendant. You know, I don't want to go to jail. And so they really worked on her for a long time. And finally, um, she told them that she had seen Ms. Denton some point after the time that the crime was supposed to have occurred and that she made an incriminating statement about, um, you know, having killed the guy who stays over in front of Wally's. Um, and that was the extent of, of the interaction. 
Here's Loudon Brown in an interview with Eleven Alive a few years back. And I would suggest that's why the district attorney didn't rely on it in his closing argument and instead relied on bite mark evidence, which was at that point believed to be reliable, but we now know was utterly unreliable. Rick Curry, the district attorney who prosecuted Sheila Denton's case, remembers it a little differently and now says it was the confession, not the bite mark evidence that really made his case at trial. The man was killed is on ABC Avenue, which is off just, it runs parallel to State Street, which is US 1 North. So every time I head out US 1 North, you know, I pass the house. So I I remember the case. What was the most compelling evidence to you? Generally, it was the confession. You know, we we had a confession from her to a, I hate to say a crack dealer, but somebody in the crack house. And she made a pretty good witness. He downplays the bite mark evidence today. It's, 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 interesting that, it's interesting that he downplays the bite mark evidence today and brings in the, the alleged confession when even the judge believed that the alleged confession might have been coerced or questionable at best. Um, if I had not had the confession, it would have been a difficult case. The confession was the case. In this interview, the former DA even goes so far as to say he thinks the outcome of the trial would have been the exact same without the bite mark evidence. I think a jury would look at it and say, yeah, that's probably, yeah, she did that. Do you truly believe the jury would have convicted her without that bite mark testimony? Yes. He didn't testify that, in my professional opinion, this bite mark was made by Sheila Denton. He said it was probably. But when a juror hears from a, someone that you guys are deeming an expert, and he says, I probably think it's her that bit him and vice versa, that's got to be pretty compelling. Yeah, but he probably means probably. But what's interesting is at trial, the, the prosecutor, the, lead, the district attorney who, who tried the case, said to the jury in closing arguments, you know, if it was just the word of Ms. Jones, if that's all we had here, I would concede that that's reasonable doubt. So he basically disavowed the credibility of that witness. And he said instead, you know, you should convict because of the bite mark. That's all you need. Um, so I think he, the prosecutor himself knew that the interrogation led to some unreliable, an unreliable statement and that the supposed confession wasn't, wasn't a confession at all. In 2018, Mark Loudon Brown and the Southern Center for Human Rights take their argument and Denton's case back to court. This past November, Loudon Brown filed a motion to ask a judge to grant Denton a new trial. In his brief, he included testimony from five other forensic dentists who reviewed Denton's case. All of them concluded the scars were either not bite marks at all or inconclusive at best. All five of them concluded that not only could could you know these identific- so-called bite mark identifications not be made, but in their opinions, they were not bite marks in the first place. Neither injury was a bite mark in the first place. For Loudon Brown and his team, the next step in this process would be an evidentiary hearing where they called two of those dentists to testify. So they both testified, and then also the dentist who originally testified against Ms. Denton at trial, he also testified at the hearing. Um, and he, he was sort of begrudgingly stated that the 
change in scientific understanding today would require him to present a different conclusion than he did at trial. But he he emphasized the fact that uh, these were guidelines, best practices that the ABFO had had issued. Um, they weren't mandatory, and so he wouldn't have to follow them. But I'll, I didn't find that very persuasive because, you know, he didn't have a reason not to follow them. The guidelines were sort of produced in accordance with current scientific understanding. So he would have had no reason not to abide by them. Um, and fortunately, the judge agreed and, and credited our dentists and, and granted Ms. Denton a new trial. So the judge granted a new trial. He believed that uh, the bite mark evidence is inherently unreliable, and he also believed that there would likely have been a different outcome if there would be a trial today. So that was a big deal um, to put that in writing. So the judge, um, he's, a chief, he's the chief judge down there, and he, um, his opinion, you know, he, he was clearly very troubled by the use of in my opinion, he was seemed very troubled by the um, use of bite mark evidence. Um, he thought he—I think he was convinced by the the testimony of our experts that you know there were just there's just no studies out there. There's no evidence out there to show that bite mark evidence is reliable. There's just nothing out there to suggest that it's reliable, and there's a lot to suggest that it's not reliable, like the construct validity test and all of the you know, the 30-some wrongful convictions that we know of in the, in the United States. So I think he was concerned by that and that he, he, he credited our experts and he found that the uh, testimony today would be materially different, right? At, at trial, there wouldn't be evidence that the decedent and Ms. Denton bit each other. There would be no evidence of bite marks whatsoever because today's science doesn't support the idea that either one of these injuries was a bite mark. They were just injuries. And so he he found that that was, you know, material that it would have could have changed the outcome of the verdict. And, you know, he, he ultimately said, said that he was concerned about the use of bite mark evidence in courts, in courtrooms going forward, which I thought was a pretty big statement for him to make. This all happened just last year, in February of 2020. That was right as COVID was hitting. And we grew very concerned about Ms. Denton's health um, in the prison. And so we filed immediate, we immediately filed a motion to release her on bond pending the new trial. And to their credit, the prosecution um, didn't oppose that. They agreed, they conceded, uh, they agreed to let her out on what's called a recognizance bond. So she didn't have to pay any money. She just got out with a promise to come back to court when her trial happens. And so that was back, that was over a year ago now. Um, and we still, technically we're still pending a trial date. If they, if they choose to retry her, they, they could. I, I don't think they should. Um, I think it would be proper for them to dismiss the case, but they have not done that yet. And so... You know, I believe the district attorney had a certain, the current district attorney had a certain period of time to appeal the decision, and they did not appeal it. And so, as of today, 
um, Sheila Denton is a free woman. Now in her 50s, Sheila Denton is out of prison and reunited with her family. A victory for those who've maintained that she's innocent. But if Denton didn't kill Eugene Garner, the fact remains that someone did. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson here with Reed Redman and Spencer Brudig. Reed, uh, so much uh, in this case to talk about. Uh, let me ask, first of all, any other possible suspects? I'm not sure whether that was mentioned or not, that, that maybe police have leads on or think might be out there. You know, Will, that's the really unsatisfying and, and tragic ending that we're left with, is that whoever did this as of right now, has gotten away with it. When I spoke to Mark Loudon-Brown, who's Sheila Denton's attorney, I did ask, you know, if you don't think Sheila did this, who do you think it could have been? And he basically said that they tried looking into it, but 15 years had gone by, so they didn't really have a whole lot of luck trying to sort of reinvestigate the case where investigators left it. But he did say there were other suspects mentioned in police documents. There was even someone, um, again, this is according to Loudon-Brown, that may have broken into and burglarized Eugene Garner's home before the murder. But obviously when investigators zeroed in on Sheila Denton and Denton was charged, they didn't really have a reason to continue investigating other suspects. So could there be other suspects? Yes, but we don't really know who or if there's any sort of ongoing investigation into them. And, you know, guys, before we move on, I wanted to read a little bit from uh, the report that was filed from uh, GBI Special Agent Jeff wrestler uh, when he first arrived at the scene just to give a little bit more commentary on you know how they found Garner and and what the state of his apartment was um, it, it says that he entered the house and he noticed that the front door was open the windows are all locked the back door and the back gate are closed and locked he finds Garner face down as we said in the episode um, but as he moves to the house he notices two jumbo bucks classic scratch off lottery tickets which have already been played and they're just scattered on the floor and the TV is on uh, which gives the room an eerie glow and nothing was really seen out of the ordinary except for those two scratch off tickets and then there was like this giant cup of soda um, that was leaking uh, and and the apartment is apparently immaculate but then as he goes inside deeper there's this vase with a flower arrangement that's been strewn across the floor and a lamp has been knocked off um, and just 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 interesting that you know he notices these like three or four things that show signs of struggle and and that really uh clearly made them think homicide. Yeah, and it's it's actually really eerie. Eleven Alive and, and Andy Parati tracked down some of the footage of investigators going through the home, and it's in their reporting. If you go to Eleven Alive's website, the name of their investigation is called Flawed Forensics, and and you can actually see some of the footage of them moving around the home and, and seeing, you know, blood on the walls and, and all these different signs of struggle. And Reed, speaking of potential alleged flawed forensics, uh, I want to talk about the hair that was found in, that was clutched 
in Garner's right hand. It was really the only thing that he was holding, of course, uh, when they found him and, and they found this cluster of hair. And then what's wild about that is that Sheila Denton allegedly was missing a cluster of hair from her head, which would scream, oh, we have a potential link between the two of these people. But then there's some weird stuff that goes on in the actual testing process, right? Yeah, you know, Spencer, that that seems like it'd be a, a really big clue and maybe it should have been, but that clue didn't really end up going anywhere. When the GBI looked at the hair found in Garner's hands, they concluded that it was actually consistent with his own hair and so they didn't even transfer it for DNA analysis and they actually they compared it to Denton's hair and and it showed that it wasn't Sheila Denton's hair so we don't know for sure whose hair was clutched in Eugene Garner's hands if it was in fact his own hair or just hair that had characteristics similar to his own that's as far as i can tell still one of those questions hanging out there Reed, I wanted to ask and talk a little bit about this alleged confession. It's a big part of the case, obviously, the bite mark evidence, uh, whether to allow that or not to allow it and what it it means today. But the confession is complicated, and whether it's a coerced statement or not, right? Yeah, it's really, really difficult unless you have DNA evidence or something contradicting a confession or a statement to say for sure whether that statement is false or coerced. So the term that experts in this area like to use is the totality of the circumstances, essentially asking what are all of the different factors at play and how many of them might be working together to create a scenario in which we're more likely to see a coerced statement or or a false confession in, in other cases. And that's why you heard Sheila Denton's attorney list all of these different factors. He mentioned that Sharon Jones was high during the interrogation, that the interrogation went on for a long time, that, um, of course, there was that that false evidence ploy used by interrogators where they they led her to believe that they had evidence that they didn't have, which is one of those things that, you know, a lot of people being interrogated don't know, but it's it's legal for interrogators to do. Uh, Something that I don't think we mentioned that Andy Parati told me is that Jones was also pregnant at the time, which, of course, comes into play when you have people telling you you could go to prison, you know, maybe that gives you a motivation to to say something and and you know make that not happen. But um what it comes down to is that we can't say she gave a false or coerced statement, but but all of these are factors that come into play when we're considering that totality of the circumstances. Reed, I'm curious, did uh you talk to Andy Parati or anybody else about other bite mark cases that have been overturned? Yeah, I think uh, Mark Loudon Brown mentioned that there were 30-something other cases in the last couple decades where people have been exonerated uh, or had their indictments dismissed. Andy Parati in his reporting talked to a lawyer with the Innocence Project who basically said that that is an incredible number given that there just aren't that many cases where bite mark evidence was used. And I have a quote from him here where he said, every single case that the Innocence Project has put its hands on in the last five years Every single one of those clients has ultimately been released from prison. So 100% success rate, that's that's pretty good from the Innocence Project's perspective. And it really speaks to the changes in the understanding of, of the scientific community surrounding the validity of bite mark evidence. All right, Reed, thanks for looking into this one this week. Thanks to Andy Parati at WXIA 11 Alive in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about the show and talk with like-minded true crime fans, you can check out our Facebook group, Inside the Crime Vault. And we'll be back next week with a new case and a new story. 